so much for coming. Um, we have a guest speaker today, uh, Alan Funston, uh, Engineers grad of 2007. Seven. It's a while ago now. I'm yeah. old. Uh, went through the robot competition back in the day. Yep. Uh, which one, actually? Uh, so there was the rescue robots. Oh, wow, the famous 2004 rescue bots. Uh, oh, do, we ran it. Must have been. Yep, it was 04, yeah. yeah. Um, that's the video I keep showing, actually. Oh, okay. good. Still in the so there's one where a, a, a doll, I think, gets grabbed by its hair. Yeah. That, that was our robot. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Um, and uh, actually, we have one of our guest speakers back, Betsabe, to listen to this guest speaker. So Hi. Uh, welcome, Betsabe, back into the room. I uh, chatted with Alan a couple of weeks ago and caught up uh, a bit on, on what he's been doing. And, uh, and I was blown away. So I, uh, we had some room in the, in the schedule, and I thought I would invite Alan to, uh, to talk to you about what he does. I'm not even going to try to uh, begin to paraphrase it, uh, so I will turn it over to you, but I will go and listen eagerly. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah. Please join me in welcoming. Uh, right, so thank you very much, Andre, for having me. Thank you. I, I look forward to earning this time with you. Um, so my name is Alan Funston. I am a 2007 EngFizz grad, and so I understand how hard things are <laughs> right now. I just want you to know that it does get better. Um, we'll, we'll go from there. What I'd like to do uh, with you today is share some of my work and cover two major, actually achieve two major goals. The first goal is teaching you how to think about fulfillment in a practical way. Um, a lot of what I've seen out there personally doesn't quite hit the mark and being practical and yet also creative individuals, I think that you need and de you know, deserve um, some better answers. And so I've tried to find out what those are for myself and sharing those with you. I'm hoping that you find many of the same uh, insights useful in your own lives. The bottom line ultimately is that fulfillment will ultimately come I think when you empathize with and serve others while doing what you love or while doing what you value. And so there's a lot there and who you serve and um, what you value. I mean, those are very individual questions that we'll get into later. Um, so, but it's something I want to, you to keep in mind because different elements of this are important for it to be sustainable while at the same time ensuring that you enjoy your life, right? The other goal is Let's see if we can define and weight what it is that you value. What we value, this will be an exercise later on. We'll spend about the first 25 minutes on goal number one. The second uh, goal, we'll spend about 20 minutes on it. Uh, I'd like to have you to have pen, paper, tablet, whatever you want to sort of write on for that second portion. You don't need to get it now, um, but it'll be useful for the exercise. You don't need to jot down any notes. So, um, I can make this these slides available to you later. So um, you know, I, hopefully I can... Uh, you know, engage you with the content. I'm really excited to be here. And what I'd love to do is, because there is precedence, I've done it for quite a number of people now, is together can we save you possibly years in your life today by defining and weighting what it is that you value and understanding how you might apply that in making some decisions that you might have in, fr uh, in front of you, as well as looking at how you spend your, your time. So to get there, though, uh, I need to share a little bit of background. So this is a diagram of my life so far. 2002 to 2007, I did Fizz. Uh, I chose to do it. It was one of the most difficult times in my life. At the same time, it was it ends up 
I look back on it. I still look back on it and it is one of the most fulfilling and rewarding. And so it does get better. I promise you that. <laughs> and it, I think it will be one of the best decisions you've made in your life too. So thank you for being here. Um, after a couple of co-op terms and finishing graduation, I went on to work with a company called Osenko. It was called Sandwell at the time and did large scale logistics supply chain optimization with uh, dynamic simulation modeling. Um, so we can show you like videos and, and stuff like that. But ultimately it was how to plan and operate large scale supply chains better. Uh, so that was really fun. Uh, left for a year to go manage a manufacturing plant to develop leadership and management skills, uh, working with people who are from diverse backgrounds. And so that was useful. Uh, I felt I really needed it at the time. I'm always growing, we all, we all are, but uh, that, that helped. And then returned to lead projects and ultimately the business line, doing my MBA partway through to better speak the language of my clients, right? To understand and empathize with other people. So this has sort of been my career journey so far. Uh, mixed in there, uh, <laughs> a few long-term relationships. And actually, as of last Thursday, uh, I have been happily married 10 years. So that that's kind of where I'm... Thank you. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm at. Um, early 2016, my twins were born. And in early 2018, we had a third. Um, and the reason I tell you this is not just because you're interested in my story. You're not, and I get that, and that's cool. It's fine. But the reason I tell you this is because by several of the traditional definitions of success that we tend to hold, um, I feel like I've had some good, some representation that's close to that. And, but the thing is, it doesn't explain that why in late 2016, I fell into four months of depression, right? And I don't know if anyone has ever uh, suffered from, you know, uh, mental illness or, or, or the like, uh, and you don't need to raise your hands or anything, or possibly you have people in your family who have as well. Um, and, and the reason isn't because that our traditional uh, definitions of success aren't right, aren't correct in some capacity, but they're just not the whole story. And so I tried to figure out what the rest of that story was. What was I missing? And so I'm, I'm hoping to sort of share that with you today. Um, I guess what was born out of those four months and really deep soul searching existential crisis type stuff was I figured, you know, I ultimately decided I'd launch Sentient Future Consulting, right? And developed the ideas around it. I've worked probably 3,500 hours or so on it since the, since about that time, it's about four hours a day. Um, and just as a bit of background, part of that was reflecting back on my life and estimating that 81% of my life since birth had actually been scheduled. 19% had not. That 19% is about 55,203 hours and or 6.3 years. And I looked at that time as time that I'd not lived intentionally, that I'd not lived it necessarily according to what it is that I valued. Uh, and there's nothing I can do about that past. I can't recover it. But what I wanted to possibly do through Sentient Future, and you'll see how that comes about, is to try to make up for that by creating intentional time in other people's lives per what you value and per what you report, right? So, yep. So what do you mean exactly by the word like schedule here? Like, I can think, for example, in K to 12, I had plenty of time that was scheduled for me that I had nothing to do with what I valued. Yes. Um, and so, and so it's interesting you say that. Yeah, no, good, good point. So yes, obviously in the early years, that time was scheduled for me, right? And in the long run, I mean, going back to like school and kindergarten, preschool, that kind of stuff, I mean, the things that uh, were scheduled for me at the time, personally, I am glad I did them. It, it 
those were building blocks to, to things later on. So obviously we only have a certain amount of agency as a young child. And then as you grow older, you have more and more agency, ideally hundred um, percent. So I, yes, it was scheduled for me, but nevertheless, um, I, I do value it. I think I would, I choose the same similar things for my children. Uh, and so if that kind of makes sense. So, While trying to find my way, I came across an interesting framework to get started. Who here has seen or has heard of the Ikigai framework? Okay, a few of you. And so it's, this, it's a relatively simple concept, Venn diagram. The idea is that we're most fulfilled and sustainably happy when we operate at the intersection of four areas. What you love, what you're good at, what other people need, and what you're willing to, or what you can be paid for, right? Now, I had a pretty good idea of what I was good at, and I knew what I could be paid for. I had some idea of what I loved, but I felt like I was missing part of the picture. And I had some idea of what the world needed, but I felt at the same time that I didn't have a, a solid understanding of all of the different needs that were out there and possibly where I could be of most service. That intersection for me is ultimately sentient future consulting, and so I'm looking to do this for the rest of my life. The problem I settled on was regret. Regret is an interesting one. Regret is a form of suffering. It's extremely painful, especially as we get older and we have less time to do anything about it. Uh, we all face it, or rather I should ask, who here has regretted anything they've done in their life? Okay, who here uh, has lived long enough to regret something they've not done? If you're not careful, you'll all put your hands up. <laughs> um, but, you know, both can be quite painful and what's, I guess, sad, not saddest, but it's 100% preventable. The problem is we don't really know how. We haven't really been taught how. There are, uh, I guess there's mergers of different disciplines that are required to come to some of these conclusions. And so that's what I'm hoping to share with you today. One of the big problems, I think, is that it's getting worse, right? There is a trend, and I'm not sure how many of you have heard of it. It's called the attention economy. Uh, we can share. We can talk about it a little bit more later in terms of what it is, but it, it's actually making the problem of regret worse. And so the root cause of that ultimately is that we don't pursue what we value long term, right? Our brains are wired for short term gratification. From an evolutionary standpoint, that was necessary to keep us alive. And now that we're not facing life and death decisions every single day, some of that wiring doesn't serve us as well as it could. But there are ways to overcome it. So sentient, the definition is that it is our capacity to uh, observe and value things subjectively in life. Um, so the capacity to feel pain, to feel pain, to feel pleasure, the capacity to suffer. Not all animals have it. We do, complex animals do, uh, your, your household pet likely does, uh, insects don't, right? And somewhere in the middle, there's a gray area. But it raises this question of if we can value things subjectively, then should we not try to optimize that or maximize that? And how would we do it? How do we quantify or do anything in a structured way when it's inherently qualitative? Which is why I think this problem has gone unsolved for so long. So I started with this idea that there were sort of three core perspectives, kind of zooming out. The first was at you know, for us as individuals, we have different values, right? And we go about 
uh, our world by sensing ourselves in our context, by interpreting what we sense emotionally and with reason, and by ultimately deciding what we're going to do and then acting. Right? This process can be recursive. It usually operates in that order, but doesn't have to. Um, that is one way of looking at us and this, the fundamental skills that we have as human beings. Then ultimately, you know, there's uh, us, every other living being, and even you know, tables and inanimate objects can be looked at as processes. We have inputs, you know, an applied force, among other things. We have outputs. We have internal processes. What's kind of interesting about us is that we're not really deterministic. Uh, it's hard to tell exactly what the outcome is going to be because we value things subjectively. We can't uh, necessarily, we can't get into someone else's mind and know exactly how they'll react. But we try. And the last piece is that, of course, we interact with one another. We interact with our surroundings. We are ultimately all connected, right? We're individual and connected at the same time. Um, and we're connected through how, through our, ultimately our interactions and our influence over our external environment and other people and its influence on us. So these three main perspectives, again, zooming out, were uh, sort of the core thesis for, um, for building out a, a larger work, which I'll show in a moment. But the reason why I felt I needed to develop a larger work was because this, this problem of, reg of regret is so individual, right? Um, what you value, uh, the, the people in your life, the situations in your life, they're all unique. And so how do you solve a problem that unique in a general way? It's hard. And so the only way that I felt I could do it was, well, I needed to understand the human condition as best I could, right? From a way that was actionable, measurable, um, practical, that was, you know, ideally evidence-based, that was compatible with different belief systems, right? And to, to do that as best I could. Um, and that leverages a lot of the first principles that I came to understand through engineering physics and a lot of my other studies, which I think, you know, hopefully uh, your fluency with, uh, you, or sorry, the, sorry, your fluency with fundamental principles well, those basic principles will serve you extremely well in your careers because of your ability to then combine them in unique ways. Ultimately, what it came to was sentient process network theory. Um, there's a lot here, and we're not going to go into it in depth, but I'm happy to answer questions about it later. You'll see on the left the, the three core ideas, right? Our sentience, um, the fact that we can look at ourselves and uh, who we are as processes, right? Which we can do math around that if necessary, uh, and that we're ultimately connected using network science and using a variety of um, other disciplines and looking at them together. One of the most interesting ones or things that came from this, I'll sort of zoom into it. Um, oops, one second. I'll zoom into it later. But one of the more interesting pieces that came from that is that uh, there were a few bodies of work I borrowed uh, and obviously referenced, but uh, one is Robert Pluchik's psychoevolutionary theory of emotion. And so it's a really practical model of emotions, eight core emotions for uh, opposing pairs. And so uh, that's kind of useful in the sense of developing our emotional quotient, our emotional intelligence, uh, to be able to label how it is we are feeling, to name it, to get to know ourselves better and to ultimately be able to name and get to know other people uh, other people's emotions better too, so that we can empathize, so that we can be more effective in daily life. Another interesting work was this work by a group of psychologists uh, that looked uh, at virtues and what virtues were held um, fairly cross-culturally. There were a list of 24 that were the most 
I guess, predominantly accepted virtues across different cultures. And I found that really interesting. I fig- tried to figure out what the vices were, their opposites, and then combine those virtues, which are ultimately behaviors, virtues and vices with behaviors, and uh, emotions, how we feel and how others feel when we behave that way in different social settings, right? Different um, networks. And so that's this, the, this bottom portion uh, with the different sort of colored diagrams beside virtues and vices. Um, and an interesting outcome of this was that it's uh, it starts to, to actually codify empathy. When you behave this way, uh, you'll tend to make other people feel that way. And that's useful in a variety of uh, respects, both in planning interactions with other people and reflecting on our own interactions. Did I uh, upset them? Uh, did they interpret my behavior the way that I had intended? Can I go back and can I apologize? Can I repair that relationship? Can we move forward in a constructive way? So these are some of the outcomes of the work, despite it actually not being the, the goal. The goal was to better understand uh, the human condition in a way that when I serve an individual or I serve someone, that there might be, like, not all of this is relevant to all people at all times, but any, at any one point, some of it is relevant to to, to any one person, um, but that I could, you know, work with clients and identify, well, this is a concern for you. This is a concern for you based on what you've been telling me. And these are related in this way. It looks like we can solve these issues simultaneously by recognizing that they're connected and, you know, looking at the root causes and stuff. So that's why I ultimately developed it. Um, but some interesting things, I guess, come from that. Oops. Uh, I did not mean to do that. So we'll go back to uh, that later. Okay, so let's go back to the, the goal. So what about fulfillment can we really deduce from this perspective on who we are and how we're connected? So there were 12 insights that really come from this work, and I'm hoping that these are you know, useful and practical things for you to think about and possibly apply. Um, this is separate from the exercise. The first is that we are all sentient, that we value life subjectively, right? All of us are, and yet you are unique. There's no one else like you, no one with your exact combinations of values, and I want you to really think about that and respect that because we have a lot in common, but we also are, are fairly different in some respects, and that is what makes life so rich, in my personal opinion. Number two, how you and others feel is the end game. Everything else, everything tangible, call it money, um, you know, physical items, and the like, those are all means to an end. If it doesn't actually help us or the people that you care about feel better, feel happier in their lives, then it's actually just a means. How you and other people feel is the end game. Number three, fulfillment is the process of achievement and not the achievement in itself. Um, I could go on about this, but the long story short is if you... Uh, stake all of your fulfillment or happiness in the achievement of specific goals, then you're really delaying any chance at happiness until the time where you possibly could achieve that goal. Uh, And the other issue with it too is that that goal may not occur because of external factors. Some goals are not entirely under your control. And so do you risk happiness at all, um, you know, by by doing that? Whereas if you look at uh, fulfillment as the process of going towards it, then you're able to gratefully sort of look back at your growth, regardless of what exactly where you end up, right? Number four, and, and you're allowed, you know, you can be fulfilled and happy today. <laughs> you know, you don't have to, to push it back. Number four, time is our universal currency. Um, this is an interesting one, but 
you know, obviously there's the physical, uh, you know, studies of, of time and space and the like, and those are compatible with us. But one perspective, a useful one is that time is a currency. We spend it, we can waste it, um, we can trade it. I, mean, I think a lot has been said about that, but when we look at it as a, a currency, um, there's actually some unique things that we can do, and this will come up in the exercise. By the way, it could buy more than money can. Um, time can buy relationships. Money, that's just absurd, right? So right, we invest time in, in you know the lives of people that we care about. Number five, schedule your time to consciously defend what you value. So this is an interesting one too. Um, so I personally schedule and track 100% of my time. Um, it's, a, it's a practice that I chose was right for myself and I don't think it's right for everybody, but if you put together a schedule at all, the real value of putting a schedule together is not that you do what you want to do at the time that you want to do it. It's that um, really you defend yourself against what you don't value. That when something comes across your plate and it demands time from you, that you have a default, that you can go back to your calendar and say, well, this is what I was going to do with that time. Uh, is this new thing more important? It's okay if it is, switch to it, right? Just because it's scheduled doesn't mean it has to be rigid, but it gives you a default such that if the, uh, if the new thing is not important, you have that permission, you've given yourself the permission to push it aside and say, no, not one of my priorities, right? And you can be at peace with that decision. Number six, prioritize. So when you're creating value for other people, there's actually sort of different tiers of value. Um, the first is actually giving value directly. And so you've observed this whenever you see a piece of art or you listen to a song, uh, something that evokes an emotion in you. If you uh, experience that emotion directly, that is sort of the highest tier of, of value. If you can do something immediately that get, it brings uh, a smile to someone's face, that's the best form of value you can give to them. And you obviously get to know them uh, and to do that. The second tier is to give them time, right? So if you can't uh, bring them happiness in some capacity, right? then try to give them time so that they can pursue happiness on their own. If you can't give them time, then give them um, money so that they can buy time. And if you can't give them money, then give them space so you don't take up their capacity to either earn money or spend time pursuing what it is that they value. So different tiers, as you s serve others and even you know, yourself, uh, you know, seek what you can you know, give people that is uh, directly valuable first and then um, Sort of step down from there. Number seven, uh, acting on your values, uh, sorry, act on your values to feel fulfilled. The alternative is suffering regret. So um, I haven't made this distinction quite yet, but fulfillment, the way I look at it is the opposite is, is regret, right? Uh, we feel fulfilled when we act consistently with, our, with what we value and regret when we uh, don't, right? When we knew better at the time. Number eight, the attention economy is a mounting global threat. Uh, long story short here is there is far, oh, yep, hello. Mm, that's a good point. So let's put it this way. If you can't give them, uh, so let's say, let's say it's in a busy environment right? And they're already busy in the sense that you, you can't give them time. Um, you know, you are really just staying out of their way. They're ma they're make you're making the chaos around them a little less chaotic or making it, it a little bit clearer for them to choose among the seven things they've got as opposed to you being an eighth, 
right? So in that sense, there is no opportunity to necessarily give them time. Um, but by not being there, you make their decisions a little bit clearer. That's one example I could think of of giving someone space is that uh, you know they're not they're not idle by you stepping away, but their life is a little simpler. So giving them time, right? So if you can save them time by maybe offering them a technology or showing them a technology that saves their time, great. Now, what they do with their time ideally is what it is that they value. Now, if they love spending time with you as a friend, right, then they'll, you know, once you save them time, they're like, well, let's go for coffee, right? So um, yeah, it's, it's saving their time, ideally, and then that may or may not include you spending yours. Um, and so, yeah, we'll talk about the attention economy a little bit later if you like, but the, the short answer, the short story to that one is that, uh, attention is a growingly scarce resource and it's extremely valuable because it's ultimately our life. There's far more to pay attention to than we ever could in our lifetimes. And therefore, uh, a lot of people will be, uh, trying to get our attention. Um, and it's not necessarily in line with what it is that we value. It's not necessarily in a fulfilling way. Whoever has binge watched Netflix has experienced this or, or YouTube, same thing, right? And I'm not it's totally not bad if you value that, but when it's been four hours and you only expected to watch one episode, that's when it, um, it starts to rear its ugly head. Um, yeah, defining what you value separates the relevant from the waste, which is kind of this, uh, this thing we've already covered. It's this idea that when you know what you value and you, you plan for it, then it's more clear what the distinction is. There's always this comparison that you're consciously making. Uh, number 10, defining what others value enables service. So when you know what other people value, when you know how they feel, what you're ultimately doing is you're being more empathetic. You're putting yourself in their shoes and uh, you, know, you can serve them better if that's your intent. Uh, obviously that has the capacity for harm too if you're mean-spirited, but we'll get into to why this is uh, a bad idea, even for yourself long-term. Number 11, um, serving others virtuously evokes joy, joy and love. Sorry, joy and trust. Joy and trust are two of those core emotions I mentioned, and it's the interesting combination, I found a really good definition, is that joy and trust is love. When we bring joy to someone's life, and when we show them that they can trust us, they love us. We consistently bring them joy. Right? When something else consistently brings you joy, you love it. And so I, I like this definition because it's actually, uh, call it analog, but it's, it's continuous. Right? We can have varying levels of trust for someone. We can have varying levels of joy in a particular experience or with, with a particular individual. And so um, you know, to, to serve others uh, virtuously, uh, one of the interesting things is all those virtues have in common is they either increase joy or trust. And the opposite is true. Vices increase, increase sadness or disgust, uh, uncertainty, and just any sort of negative feelings. Um, and the, the neatest part I found was that number 12, um, that virtuous decisions and behaviors are actually self-optimal. So sometimes we think of behaving virtuously as doing nice things for other people, uh, being generous, giving other people things. And, and that, that is true, right? And if you do that uh, blindly, right, then uh, sometimes you can end up you know, not, you know, being any better off in the end um, yourself. But if you do it mindfully, it's actually kind of neat because if 
you cre- if you consistently create joy in other people's lives, then they are going to want to continue working with you. By our nature, we have different skill sets, which means that later on when you're dealing with a multidisciplinary problem, they can help you on the disciplines that you're not strong at, right? It's inherently more efficient. You achieve more of your shared goals by being nice to other people and wanting diverse people to work with you because, um, you know, that that's why we have diversification of, of roles and the like in, in organizations. And the opposite is true, right? If you are mean to people, if you are vicious, if you... Uh, take advantage of them for short-term gain. Well, yes, you might have that short-term gain, but they're never going to work with you again. And from a, um, you know, from a reputation perspective, the fact that uh, life is so transparent these days, or increasingly transparent, uh, there's a lot of other people that they know that are never going to work with you again. And so you're going to run out of people to work with. And ultimately, whatever goals you have, you're going to have to do them all yourself. There are going to be parts of that that you're lousy at. It's going to take you more time. You're ultimately getting fewer of them done. So it's actually in your selfish best interest to be selfless. It's this idea that the math can actually prove karma and that it's, it's, it's worthwhile being nice to other people, even if you're entirely selfish. So I'm hoping that these 12 insights um, from the body of work or from my body of work are useful in driving some of your actions and behaviors in a way that you are ultimately gonna feel happier long-term, which is you know, how I define fulfillment. Um, and, uh, we have a couple of choices. We could either jump right into the exercise that I think would, you would find interesting. It's going to be specific to each of you. Uh, or we can answer a couple of questions on this briefly before moving on and then leave more questions for the end. Um, any, I guess I'll throw a vote out there. Who wants to start with the exercise? Okay. And who would like to ask a few questions at this time as opposed to waiting till later? Okay. Let's jump into the exercise. What are we doing for time? Okay. Oops. Of course I keep doing that. So I'll uh, give you guys a minute to pull out whatever writing instruments you use. Uh, does anybody need a little bit more time? Okay, so all of the instructions are basically on this uh, list already, but I'll take you through them and, and sort of why they work nicely. So this process gets around the problem that the qualitative isn't quantitative. Um, it, it, it can, or those two rather can be merged, but not a lot of people have figured out a way how to, and so I'm hoping that you find this practical in ways that other people have also found it practical. The first question is, what do you value in life? This is different from your personal values, right? Your personal values, uh, we tend to think of character traits like honesty or resilience, right? And we value either those in ourselves or in others. Those are important, but they're only a part of what you of what you value, right? Um, so those character traits, you might benefit or you might value them in, from a personal development standpoint. Right? You might also benefit or value them in the context of networking with other people that hold those traits because you, uh, you enjoy being with people like that more. 
But other things that come to mind, and there is no set list of categories, you decide entirely what it is that you value. It needs to be you know, the most authentic list possible, right? So I, I, I try not to give people suggestions, but some of the ideas that, or the categories that other people mention are things like exercise, things like I value spending time with my family, I value time spending with my friends, with my significant other, w alone, right? I value my hobbies, I value sports, I value contribution, I value service, I value, right? And so any of those count. You and you alone get to decide what you value, not just for this exercise in life. You and you alone get to decide what you value. No one else gets any say. Um, and when you've done that, there are certain things that you could categorize. You can make as many as you like. I, I recommend something between a list of five and 10, um, just for practicality. And it's not to say that of the list of six that you might have, of six things that, or areas of life that you value, that you don't value anything else. Of course you do, right? The thing is you just don't value them as much as the first six. Those first six are kind of your top six and they disproportionately have a greater impact on your decisions and your happiness. Right? So from a practicality standpoint, we work with the top however many. Again, it doesn't have to be six, it doesn't have to be five, it could be three, so long as it's right for you. And um, this is an exercise that you may want to reflect on this evening. You won't be able to necessarily complete it now. But what does that do? Well, when we look at a standard week, 168 hours, and you subtract roughly eight hours a, uh, a day for sleeping, I know for fizz it's like six or four, or whatever you guys get, um, <laughs> you know, we're down to something like 112. To make the math easy, not like you guys need easy math, but to make the, the, uh, the math easy, let's think about 100 waking hours in a week. Assuming you had no other responsibilities, and you could spend those 100 hours on the six categories of things that you valued, but you could only spend that time on one of those categories at a time. How much time would you spend on each of the things that you value? Now, the funny thing is it's a strange question um, because I, I'd never heard of it asked before, but it's an answerable one because we already do it subconsciously. Subconsciously, we have time. We choose to spend it on any number of things. We just don't always know what we value and we don't always do it consciously or, or in a planned way. And so the outcome is that we've missed our ideal balance in some way. And you don't have to be exactly on balance, but the closer you are, the better you're going to feel. Um, and so what does that actually do? It, when you put a number to how many hours you would spend on something you value, and that means like I would spend 10 hours with my friend, I would spend 12 hours with my family, I would spend 15 hours exercising, right? Then what that ultimately does is it creates of you the list of things that you value, it transforms them into decision criteria. You have six decision criteria with different weights on each of them. What you've done is you've transformed what are inherently qualitative things, qualitative values, into quantitative metrics, ways that you can um, you know, look at the decisions and how you, how does you spend your time. And so the way that I'd advocate using that is in one of two ways. The first way is in making major life decisions, right? From an education standpoint, from a career standpoint, from a relationship standpoint, from a where do I want to live standpoint, right? the big ones, right? And you'll come across many of those in your life. But uh, when you have, let's say, three different options in front of you, what you can do is you can score each of those options out of 10 for each of your criteria for each of the categories of things that you value, 
right? Does this particular career option or, or job prospect give me the time to exercise, right? How much time does it give me to exercise? It, does it get a seven out of 10 on that, on that particular um, value? When you have scores, let's say out of 10, on each of the things that you value for a particular option, you multiply the scores out of 10 by the weights in percentages. Um, it's don't worry about the units, the units don't really matter. But when you do a sum product of that, you get a score at the bottom of each option. The highest score out of all of the options that are in front of you right now is the one that suits your values the best. It's the one you're likely to feel most fulfilled in. So you can make conscious big decisions from a values base, but in a practical and structured way. Now, what I've noticed is when doing this with other people is that what we... I guess even the best options, right, that my clients have had, they tend to, to reach a 70% maybe of the theoretical maximum score that any one option could have. And doesn't seem all that high. And you ask the question if, you know, if, you know, this is only 70% of my theor theoretical maximum score, am I only going to be 70% fulfilled by, by choosing this option? And the answer is no, 100%, right? of the options in front of you, of what you valued at the time, this was your best option. There is no opportunity cost to picking something else. You would never go back to this point in time and do anything differently. You move forward with that one with full confidence. And yeah, of course you're gonna learn about more things later. Of course, more opportunities are gonna become apparent later. Your values will shift as uh, your life, you know, as you enter different phases of your life. Um, and that's okay. You'll never judge, please don't judge past decisions on the basis of today's values or today's, op today's options. Or today's information, right? Um, and so effectively, this is a regret-proof decision-making process. You would never go back and do anything differently. The second way that I'd advocate you try to use this is uh, in short-term time balancing. So I know that balancing your time seems laughable right now because fizz, um, but remember that you are doing it for greater reasons. You are doing it for yourself and for your family and for your, um, you know, for your future. And so it isn't just about the schoolwork. It's, it's really about this platform that enables you to go do more things with it. And it's a very powerful one, by the way, that's why it's hard. Um, and so the, what you can do with that is when you know what it is that you value and how you'd ideally sp you know, spend your time across these different things, you can audit your time. Take a quick look. How did you spend your last week, right? And the first things I'd advocate you look for isn't necessarily did I strike the exact right balance. First of all, it's rarely going to happen that you extract the exact right balance, and it certainly won't sustainably happen. The key things you're looking for are, are there parts of life that I value that I have ignored for too long? Start there, right? If you've not exercised in three weeks, and it's something you value. Not everyone values exercise, but if it's something you value and you haven't exercised in three weeks, chances are you don't feel very great right now. Um, and by looking at uh, how you've recently spent your time and how well those pieces uh, map to what it is that you value, you can be more conscious about at least including some of everything that you value that um, to get as close to that balance as you can right now. Over time, and you have, you know, you'll have greater and greater agency over uh, what it is you're doing on a daily basis. Uh, I know you've chosen school and you've got obviously quite a bit of decision there, but it is sort of a structured environment. Uh, as you jump into your career and so on and so forth, you'll have more and more flexibility. So with that flexibility will come the option of 
getting closer and closer to what that ideal balance is for you. So those are the two ways that I'd advocate you try using those decision criteria. Once you've weighted what it is that you value, one is to make the uh, long-term decisions, right? And one is to make the short-term choices about how you spend your time. And I think you'll find that when you regularly include time for each of the categories that you value, even if it's not as much as you'd like, right? You're going to feel far better than if you hadn't.